Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back, listeners. Hey, hey, hey. You are listening to Adventure Fit Radio. Yep. Today, what we have for you, we have a uh, gentleman named Bill Stone. So, so Bill Stone, Stone. Bill Stone was um, when we came up with a Kickstarter campaign for um, for our fundraising to get our up our setup up and running for Adventure Fit Radio. I had three people that I had that was in the Kickstarter campaign for people that I wanted to talk to. There was a photo of Usain Bolt, and it said underneath there, "Help us bring you the leaders in sport." There was a photo of Felix Baumgartner when he was skydiving from outer space. It said, help us bring you the leaders in adventure. And um, there was a photo of Bill Stone doing a TED Talk and it said, help us bring you the leading um, leading minds of the world or something like that. Mm. Um, Bill Stone was number one of the guys that I wanted to get on most out of anyone in the world because he. I watched a TED Talk that was about eight years old now about... Bill going to the moon and setting up a, a station where we can mine the moon for resources so that when we're trying to um, explore the explore the, the, nebula. Uh, the nebula, explore space that we could stop there and basically use it as a fueling station. Yeah, it's like because, a petrol station. Yeah. It's like a petrol station because the hardest thing about space travel is getting out of orbit. Mm. So if you can get out of orbit and then have a petrol station, you can do a lot more, um, expand your uh, your horizons massively and it's a huge... Um, and private companies are doing this. So... so um, SpaceX. Sp- SpaceX. Uh, I don't think SpaceX are planning to do this. Well, but not, not that specifically, but they're looking at... There's there's private companies making money in space. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah. They're, so they're, they're, they're couriering things to the, mm. the International Space Station. Bill's talking about... Um, setting up mining uh, mining on the moon. And um, it was a fascinating interview. So Bill's um, one of the world's leaders in diving, so underground diving. So he's done some of the deepest dives in the world, he explored some of the deepest caverns on the planet. He also has Stone Aerospace and um, Shackleton Mining, which are his two companies, Stone Aerospace. He wants to go and drill through the moon of, of Europa and get to the bottom where you can go to the, the, ocean uh, surface. the oceans to see if there's life on Europa. Mm. He's very well advanced in his plans for that. He's very well advanced in his plans for um, Shackleton Mining to mine the moon. And it was just a fascinating interview. Mm. Mm. Real, real interesting shit. This this guy is one of the guys that's... Um, all these guys like Elon Musk, Bill Stone, Jeff Bezos, they're at the forward, um, the front line of pushing humanity forward. You know, we don't... We don't need. People always talk about. Um, we don't need to go to Mars. We don't need to go mine Europa. We don't need to do this. We don't need to do that. But so many of the um, of the biggest, um, so many of the biggest breakthroughs scientifically came from these these exploits that we would do in the past. So the the moon missions. Everybody says that it was. A, uh, we spent so much money on the um, the moon missions. We spent so much money on the moon missions. But there's a stat, and I don't have the exact stat, but it's something like one in. Uh, it was a one to seven ratio in dollars spent to dollars brought in. So mm. the economy that the actual Apollo missions and the scientific breakthroughs and industries that came from that, it was one dollar spent, you would get seven dollars back. And also, every there was so many benefits in medical science, science in general. Um, I'm not smart enough to go through the whole thing, but Bill Stone is on the forefront of um, of making that happen again. Yep. For sure. So, um, but guys, we are sponsored today, before the show starts, by Carve. 
Carve guys are a VA company, so virtual assistants, so assistants that are abroad. Doesn't mean virtual, doesn't mean a computer. It means a person that works in the Philippines and, uh, and you can work with them at a really effective rate. If you guys want to test them out, I have three assistants with Carve, full-time, 40 hours a week. If you want to check out Carve and get 10 hours free on any project or any VA service, then you can go to www.carve.ph forward slash ADVF. We are also brought to you by True Pride. True Pride are a wealth creation service who work with ambitious individuals and families looking to worry less, take control and get ahead. Head to www.truepride.com.au forward slash ADVF. Book a call via the website. You'll get your $297 joining fee if you go waived, if you go ahead with it. And um, suss it out, guys. Here's uh, the plan for, with True Pride. What they average is $150 saving a week and the program costs you $97 a month. So it's $600 a month for the cost of 97 So check it out for yourself. Also, head to www.adventurefittravel.com and uh, check out our trips. We've got, the f- we've got Mexico coming up with Jared Fleming. We've got Bali with Carl Paoli. We've got Kokoda Track coming up. We're about to release a bunch more trips for next year. Use the code RADIO for a 10% discount there. And here's the show. Here's the show. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one. No touching of the hair or face. guys welcome back to adventure fit radio we are here today with uh bill stone tommy is beside me as usual with his guitar to, and I'm beside uh, myself. to welcome uh welcome bill to the show bill before we throw over to you we're going to just quickly play you a tribute we uh we like to refer to as tommy's tribute excellent Alrighty, uh mr it's william stone isn't it bill bill stone bill stone okay stoney yeah. Oh, I'll call you Stoney. <laughs> All right, mate. This is Under the Milky Way tonight with, with, with Stoney. I just got to move your hand there, mate. There we go. All righty. And... Sometimes when the world gets kind of empty... Sound of a deep cave with no light I think about what Bill Stone's really up to Then I remember he's on the show Lower yourself down into earth Yourself down all the way. I can't wait to hear about all the cool shit you've been up to. Be 
Neil Stone, let's get the interview underway. Now I've got a little bit of a solo here. There you go, mate. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Bill, uh, Bill, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you for having me. Cool. So um, we've got lots to talk about. I, I actually, um, before we start, believe it or not, we, we've had this podcast running for six months now. And um, when, we, when we started the podcast, we had a Kickstarter campaign. And the Kickstarter campaign, we threw it out to some people. Um, we wanted to raise money to get some of our recording equipment, um, to get production costs underway. And when we had the campaign, in the body of the campaign, we had a section of who, um, why you should support us and who we wish to speak to. And there was three pictures of, uh, of people that we wanted to speak to. Um, I built the Kickstarter campaign. This was Usain Bolt. Under the Usain Bolt, it said, um, help us talk to the world's leading athletes. There was, uh, I've forgotten the second one. And the third one was you, Bill. It was Bill Stone, help us talk to the world's leading thinkers. Um, so it's actually a real honor to have you on the show. I discovered you, your TED Talk, um, which I didn't realize was 10 years ago now, uh, about mining the moon. And it just, it was um, really just, it was amazing. It was really interesting to, to me and, uh, and inspirational. Um, so that's just, I just wanted to throw that out there and, and say welcome to the show. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you tell us about yourself, Bill? Tell us about um, what you do, your... your, your um, Dive your uh, cave exploring background and what you're trying to do now. Uh, <laughs> well, I live a, a fairly uh, complicated life in which I spend about uh, nine, eight or nine months of the year either writing proposals or designing robotic systems and testing them somewhere. And then the other three to four months were either out in the field doing that kind of work. This is mainly NASA-sponsored work for, uh, for outer planet exploration. And then uh, in between all that, uh, depending on what the time schedules are, um, we, we try to keep a couple of exploration projects uh, going down in uh, southern Mexico and, and elsewhere around the world. Um, right now, uh, we are in gear-up stage. We're leaving February uh, 5th uh, for three and a half months at Cuevacheve in southern Mexico. And uh, the goal there, if we're totally lucky, is to uh, get approximately 2,600 meters deep in about uh, – 20 to 30 kilometers from the nearest entrance of Cueva Cheve. Whoa. So yeah. that is that's cool. kind of, that's kind of filling our time right now. That's amazing. So, so what got you into, um, what got you into caving? How did you, how did you end up in this, down in these caves, 2000 meters under the earth and uh, <laughs> 2000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it goes way back to when I was 14 in high school. Um, I, uh, I was a total, nerd. I spent most of my time studying and, uh, doing the laboratory related work. I, I could have been a chemist for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, there was, a there was an announcement that came out, uh, in the fall of that year, uh, for a club, uh, called Spelunking Club. And I had, uh, I'd never heard the name. And so I got my mother to drive me over to the first meeting and there were maybe 30 or 40 people there wondering what that word meant also. <laughs> And uh, they had two people from the uh, the local Pittsburgh uh, chapter of the National Speleological Society uh, there to give a slideshow. And, you know, at first it was interesting. And then they showed a picture of a person on rope 
uh, rappelling into what was obviously a very deep hole in the ground with total blackness below him and sunshine hitting him and the rope disappearing into nothing. And it was like, wow, that looks pretty cool. And within six days of seeing that show, they had us all out at a local quarry teaching us how to rappel. And uh, that was, that was as you might say, the beginning of the downhill slide. Mm. Um, within three years, we were organizing our own expeditions to Mexico, uh, northern Mexico in those days. Um, and since then, I've, uh, I've spent roughly three months a year uh, in the field. That's amazing. Wow. Have you ever done any, um, any caving down at Waitomo in New Zealand? Uh, no, but I have done caving uh, on the South Island. Uh, we just did Harwood's Hole okay. uh, in, uh, in uh, December, uh, just a couple, well, seven months ago, eight cool. months ago. Yeah, we actually, um, our, the, the mother company of this podcast is my company is an adventure travel company, and we actually did some caving in, uh, in New Zealand um, a couple of years ago in Waitomo Caves, and it was so amazing. It was, um, there was whitewater rafting and glowworms and th- through, chas- through chasms and down waterfalls and up waterfalls. And yeah, it was, it was really cool. Well, that's, so, a, that's a good exposure. Um, and if you like that, there are people in both Tasmania and New Zealand who have some fairly serious projects going on. Right. Um, there's, there's two caves over a kilometer deep on the South Island right now. Right. Cool. That's, so, so what's the whole – when you're doing this cave – exploration what's the what's the what's the goal is it for exploration itself or are you trying to do some sort of scientific studies explain to us how it's funded kind of and uh, and what the what the main aim of these cave expeditions are well it, that's that has uh, that has changed over the years for me uh, when I first got into it it was more like um, you know how deep can I go how fast can I go on rope you know it was more of a mm. A competitive type thing and and you know always there's been curiosity but what you find is that people who get into these sports particularly uh, caving um is that either you are into it because of the attraction of the exploration that is the the pursuit of your curiosity um and also because of the people that you work with it's the camaraderie of working with increasingly more talented teams in increasingly more remote places Mm-hmm. Uh, that that draws you back. Uh, the, there's a there's a problem uh, that if you fixate on our records, um, a couple of things will happen. First of all, is that people don't always set records uh, in, in the caving world. There are a half a dozen different types of obstacles that at any given time could stop a cave cold. And regardless of having all the technology in the world, you're not going to go any further. Um, a good a good example of that was. Um, uh, three years ago, we spent uh, three months at a place called J2 uh, in the north end of the Cheve system, and we had the best gear in the world. We had the best cavers from 15 countries, and we succeeded in passing two underwater tunnels. One was 200 meters long. The other one, 650. Uh, surfaced into going air-filled passage was what we had been hoping for. Everybody was geared up to go at that point, and the guys called up on the phone uh, back at Camp 4 and said, uh, I'm sorry to report this, but the thing narrows down into a four centimeter wide crack, and the river goes into that crack. Oh, whoa! And, and so that was that. Was, that was it. So that's one. You know. So if you fixate on on purely a record, you're going to eventually be disappointed. Mm. And the second one is is more uh, of a safety issue. If you fixate on a record, you tend to um, you tend to forget about the little signals that are all around you. And uh, I won't hesitate to say that the kind of things that we do are dangerous. Um, mm. You know, 
20, 23 of my friends are dead, uh, whom Man. I've gone on expeditions with, whom I've sat around and drank beer with. And it's not, because, it's not because this is like point break or something. Okay, nobody's into this for an adrenaline rush. But a lot of these people who aren't here anymore, they they fixated on either getting a job done, like say, for example, being behind a camera and shooting a scene without paying attention to life support equipment, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, focusing on uh, getting to a certain depth underwater mm. uh, and and running into physiological problems that nobody anticipated before that time, but, you know, things like that. You know, a lot of these people uh, died pushing the ultimate, you know, frontier where we just didn't have any knowledge of what was going on before him. But the main thing is, you know, why do you go? You go because of the curiosity of putting together a puzzle. You know, if I was to look at like the places I've spent most of my time, uh, the Watla system, uh, just north of the Santa Domingo River in Oaxaca and the Cheve system, which is just south of that same gorge, uh, it's it's been about piecing together a three-dimensional puzzle underground. And so when you when you look at it from a distance, it's like playing 3D chess and each expedition is a move in the chess game. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a very costly move, okay? So we sit back just like war gamers do and we strategize, okay, what's where's the next play? Where does the expedition go? What is it going to do? How is it going to break open the next giant piece of this puzzle? And in both of these cases, it's not like uh, we have one entrance and we go, well, how far can you go into it? It's a gigantic system. Cheve, for example, stretches over 20 kilometers uh, in length and over eight kilometers wide. Wow. Uh, Watla, Watla is very similar in terms of uh, horizontal spread and vertical spread, but it's not as deep as Cheve. The, the deepest you'll get in Watla is about 1,900 meters. In Cheve, it'll go over 2,600 meters depth when the whole thing is put together. Right. Oh. So, so we have dozens of entrances on these mountains, and the question is, how do you get to the core you know, to, to connect everything up? <clears throat> and in some of these cases... Uh, like J2, we were over 10 kilometers one-way travel, uh, four and a half days one way, just to get to the most remote camp and then go exploring. Hmm. Uh, in, in Cheve next year, if everything goes according to plan, we're going to bust all those those distances and times. We'll be looking at 30 days plus for an average push, uh, and people will be on the order of six to seven days one-way travel uh, just to get in or out, not, yeah. counting, not counting exploration time. So, you know, the kind of people that do that are pretty rare, so – We've been pulling the top people out of every country we can get people out of, from Russia to Ukraine to Abkhazia to Sweden. Country I've never even heard of. Yeah, pulling pulling people out of countries that don't even exist. I think you actually (laughs) make these places up. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, yeah, no, Russia. (laughs) uh, Yeah, there 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 are lots of excellent cavers in Russia and Ukraine. In fact, right now those guys have the world depth record. Wow! Uh, Oh wow! What is the world depth record? It's about 2,180 meters, uh, but yep. it's straight down in a place called Krubera. Right. Um, and what, what are some of the conditions down there like? You just paint, paint a picture of what it's like to go down it, to, to it those depends, sort of depths. It, it depends on where you're going. Uh, Cheve happens to be at about 3,000 meters elevation, and it's subtropical. Uh, the, you can have snowfall uh, in base camp uh, in <laughs> like the middle of March. Um, and so the top part of the cave can be freezing. Uh, but the bottom part is generally up around, uh, I would say, uh, 10C, 9C, okay. some, really? somewhere in that neighborhood. That's not too bad. So yeah. it's not so warm that you can't go diving without a dry suit. Mm. Um, and so you know we have to, to factor in those. But as far as survival uh, in a place like that, um, generally everybody is wearing what you'd call expedition weight fleece. Um, and that goes under some type of a shell suit that uh, is waterproof to keep you know waterfalls from – 
uh, chilling you out and making you hypothermic. And then everybody carries a dry set of clothes for underground camps. And so generally there's about uh, eight to 12 hours of travel one way between underground camps. And uh, so the trick is keeping all those stocked, uh, getting information up and down. Uh, so everybody knows who needs what. And at the point of that spear uh, are the cave divers who are going beyond the underwater tunnels, which are in- inevitably at the bottom of these places. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like Bill, do you, do you wake up some days and wish that you were born hundreds of years ago when there was um, – I feel like you, you are a born explorer. Obviously, most of the world has been – well, the world has been – Mapped, you know, uh, we've been, we've, we've covered the globe. So is this part of the drive for you? Is part of the drive, the fact that, okay, here's somewhere on earth that nobody, I don't know how many people have been down the places that you've been, but is that part of the driving factor is you want to be somebody that's still exploring what we can explore on earth? Oh, that's the drive by far. Yeah, you know, yeah, when, when, I, when I said satisfy your curiosity, I mean go where nobody has ever gone before. Where yeah, you sure. put your foot for the first time any human has ever seen something. And I've had the privilege of doing a lot of that. Um, and the further you go away, the more likely it is that you might be the last person to ever see it. Yeah, you know? that's very true. That's amazing. But, uh, as far as being born at the right time, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm doing what's available right now. You know, if I had uh, more money, I'd, I'd be doing bigger things like, you know, setting up bases on the South Pole of the Moon. But unfortunately, that's a uh, that's a bigger financial gambit. And, you know, we're doing right now what we can bring sponsorship in for and afford to, to do. So well, doesn't hurt to buy a lottery ticket, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so let's um, let's talk about some of these other bigger projects. That's that's the stuff. The mining's super interesting. It's kind of like your TED talk. I mean, I'm, your TED talk's been watched millions of times. Mm. I'm sure. Starts off talking about caving and then takes a swing and ends up talking about Europa and then the moon. So, um, so what's? I'll let you discuss. Which is more? Which are you busier on now? You're busier on working on the, the Europa project to mine the, the, moon, uh, the moon of Europa, the, the moon named Europa, or, or, are we, or are we working harder on trying to, trying to build these moon bases? Uh, so the, 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 the blunt answer to that is we have to work where the money is. Yep. Um, since, that, <clears throat> since that TED Talk, a heck of a lot has happened uh, in, in, the, in the area of uh, outer planet robotics, we are leagues beyond what we presented at TED. Yes. Uh, we, we have built uh, four or five different generations of vehicles beyond that, both underwater and importantly for uh, getting through ice caps. And so today the, the buzzword in the space exploration world is uh, the exploration of ocean worlds. And so it's not just Europa anymore. It's Europa, Enceladus, uh, Titan, uh, and then on beyond that to Ganymede and a bunch of other ones that all appear to have subsurface oceans. Gany, Gany, Ganymede is where? Sorry, that's uh, 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 that's one of the you know, one of the outer ocean uh, moons that everybody is is interested in. Right, but the, okay. the, the ones the ones that most people focus on is uh, Europa and Solidus and Titan. And the latter two are out in Saturn, and the first one is in Jupiter orbit. So. Mm-hmm. That's where we spent a lot of our time. We've, you know, I could bore you with uh, with techno talk, but uh, just to give you a couple of highlights, uh, two years ago we built the first laser powered cryobot, which is a um, it's a device that robotically uh, melts its way through ultra deep ice caps. And the way we power it uh, without using a nuclear reactor is to take a, a large industrial laser on the surface and send power down through a glass fiber the thickness of your 
your hair um, and um, and then use it in the in the robot to convert it back to electrical power and heat uh, to melt through the ice and run computers and things like that. And with the, that kind of technology, we could actually send a vehicle through 40 kilometers of ice um, and into an ocean uh, below. So that's that's one section of it. The uh, the other half is what do you do when you get through? And we just this past year spent four months in Antarctica uh, with the Artemis uh, vehicle and. Uh, you can uh, you can see some of that if you go to our, our website, which is stoneaerospace.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's links in there for some of the movies that show that. And that was a one-and-a-half-ton vehicle uh, that had roughly a 20-kilometer range, and it was deployed uh, down a drilled access shaft uh, adjacent to the Ross ice shelf. And uh, so we were doing missions of up to 10-and-a-half kilometers or so uh, with that. And the trick was that after its exploratory mission, it had to find its way back uh, to that tiny 1.2 meter diameter hole through 10 and a half meters of ice uh, to f- get home. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we we lose a 10 million dollar robot. Well, and uh, <laughs> I'm happy to say that that both the team uh, and the robot came home uh, in in one piece. Uh, some of our team uh, were computer programmers. Uh, a lot of us were also there uh, supporting the mission starts. So we were actually doing diving below 10 meters of ocean ice in the Ross Sea uh, to clear the vehicle for takeoff. Uh, when it when it finally got ready to go, so all the data communication links were in place, and then when it came back, if there was any hangups when it was supposed to do a automated rendezvous and dock, we, we could send a diver down to go after it. But that was probably some of the more freaky diving I've done, where the surface has got this dull uh, white glow between ten meters of ice and, and the yeah. surface, and below you is a five hundred meter black void <laughs> with absolutely nothing and. That is, uh, that is insane. I can't even imagine what would be going through your mind. I mean, obviously, you'd probably be pretty, um, pretty calm and relaxed considering where you've been in the past. But so with this, um, with all these tests, so Europa in Celebus, what's what's the actual status? Who's who's leading the way? Um, who's who's funding it? Is NASA funding this? Like when when are we actually yeah, no. realistically going to have um, one of these heat boring machines drilling down through the ice on one of these planets? What's what's the time frame? Well. The answer on that is it depends, okay, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you square, okay, if, if the government goes the way it goes, which is very methodical uh, and very risk averse, uh, in 2020 or 2022, they're going to launch a flyby, this is NASA now, they're going to launch a flyby uh, mission that will have, very importantly, an ice penetrating radar on it that will look at Europa from all sides, and the reason we need that is to know how thick the ice is. Nobody at this point can, can tell you what it is. They've guessed based on modeling, but it's purely conjecture. So mm-hmm. this, thing will, this thing will provide planet-wide maps of how thick the ice is, how stable it is, where might be the safest place to put a lander. Um, it so happens that there is interest in the U.S. Congress to advance this idea of discovery of life off Earth. And so there is a push uh, either for 2022, more likely 24, 25, or 26 – uh, to launch a lightweight uh, lander and awesome. get down get down on the surface. Now, the problem is if you if you read into this in depth, uh, you'll discover that being on Europa is not a very great place to be if you happen to be alive. Um, <laughs> and the reason is that uh, the radiation environment there is so intense, so intense that a human would only last about five minutes. All right, uh, and a and a set of electronics perhaps an hour. Oh, uh, right. so, yeah. So, so they're looking at you know a maximum survival even with uh, shielding 
uh, for their electronics of maybe 30 hours uh, to oh. sit at the surface. So here's the other big kicker is to get out there, uh, even using the largest rocket that's ever been built. And it doesn't exist right now. The, the, there's a lot of government money being dumped into what's called the SLS mm-hmm. uh, launch system uh, to be able to put approximately 120 metric tons into Earth orbit. Uh, that amount of payload there, along with all the fuel that you have to have uh, to run the mission out to Europa, will put 35 kilograms of science payload on the surface. So that's like the weight of probably your standard backpacker's pack. <laughs> that's uh, Which crazy. ain't much, which that is, is not much. Okay. So we've been working the question of how lightweight can we build a system that could actually get through the ice cap. And over the past year, we've made some incredible breakthroughs that I unfortunately can't talk about in public yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to, to make a long story short, uh, we have designed uh, nuclear power systems that will fit in the side of a cryobot that is capable of getting all the way through to the European Ocean and all the way to the bottom. Uh, well, So how far does it have to go down to get to the ocean, sorry? So depending on who you're talking to, the thickness may be anywhere from one kilometers to as much as 20 kilometers. Okay. Right. That's, how much, that's the ice. And the ocean could be anywhere from 30 kilometers to as much as 100 kilometers. Sure. Okay. Now, before you panic, if you know something about building underwater equipment on Earth, um, there is, uh, there is, a, there is a, a benefact uh, to all this in that Europa is small. It's about the size of the Earth's moon. Uh, and so the gravity on Europa is only one-sixth uh, G, mm-hmm. uh, which means that at 100 kilometers depth underwater, you're effectively at 16 kilometers on Earth. And so you're a little bit more than the depth of the Challenger Deep um, out there in the South Pacific. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so that's something we know how to design equipment to work in. It's still pretty doggone deep, but it's something that we know how to do. So. If you ask me, you know, when would they do this mission and how much would it cost uh, to do it through the government, it would be at best that particular mission. Just getting the cryobot uh, through the ice cap into the bottom of the ocean, I'm going to guess somewhere between 2035 and 2040. Okay. Uh, And to to put it – well, hold on to those numbers because I'm going to tell you some different ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you were talking about putting a cryobot down with – a long-range nuclear-powered deployable autonomous underwater vehicle, now you're looking at probably 2050 and, and oh, beyond. That's, this is really and, good. Well, the reason, the reason <laughs> is partially because of this idea of risk reduction and the fact that there are procedures that have to be followed and they end up just simply taking stacks of time uh, to get through them now. That's that's the government way. Yes, and it come on. Cost. I know where you're leading us. I know where you're leading us, Bill. I want to hear. Will, come on. What other ways do we will, have? <laughs> it will cost somewhere between five and seven billion dollars just for the cryobot mission, right? Uh, if if they do it with the nuclear uh, power system. So that's. Let me just go get my wallet. I'll, uh... <laughs> All right. Well, so that is exactly the option. Okay. Yeah. Right now, there are over fifteen hundred billionaires in the world, and if any of you are out there listening, let me give you a piece of information. Okay, <laughs> if we want to find life off this planet in our lifetime, we have a team that can do it. Mm. It's going to run probably around one point five billion. Okay, and that's largely the cost of the launch vehicle and the development of the payloading and certifications for a launch of nuclear material. All of these things are capable of being done by private corporations. Okay, I would have been laughed out of the podium if I had said this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. 
But, but the fact is that the technology has come along since then to the point where a private team using subcontractors, some of them might be the same as, as the government uses, and we might even use certain government labs uh, to do that. We could do the whole thing for about $1.5 billion and do it in under seven years. That is to say, have a cryobot in the European Ocean within seven years. It's actually so quite the difference feasible, is, isn't it? Mm. I really, I really wish I had have studied harder in school. Yeah. Because, um, yeah. Because one point five billion dollars to me, I mean, a billion dollars is a billion dollars. Yeah. But it's not an inordinate amount of money. No, it's not. So, it's do you not. think? Um, this is a really interesting point, Bill. Do you think this is the future of exploration, like space exploration in particular, with the likes of um, Bas Lansdorp and Elon Musk, people like yourself, Richard who are, Branson? Yeah, who are trying to trying to open up. Um, space to private companies because, like you say, the government is so hamstrung by rules, regulations, and funding. Do you think this is the future? The future is people like yourself? Uh, if, if people like myself can connect with the people who are in the higher strata of economic wealth, mm-hmm. okay? What we're talking about is not – when I, when, I meant, when, when I originally said there that I could go on caving expeditions and do original work here, it's because that's something that we know how to raise the money for. I can, I can pull in a million dollars or a million and a half, pretty much within the space of a year if I have to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, for a, for, a, a, for a robotic test mission out to Antarctica, we can pull in $5 million for a course of a three-year project. Okay. These are small potatoes because you still have to pay this launch cost to get to orbit from which you can then do the injection burns to get you into the translation trajectories out to these other targets. Okay. So, yeah, this is a this is an interesting transition zone. Okay, I probably more so than anybody else in the space business, I've had the privilege of being on the side where I've seen human exploration at the absolute limits of remoteness and mm. dependency on other people in places where you don't have a mission control telling you what you have to do every second and where they're not going to rescue you. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, so in that sense, you mentioned five hundred years ago. Yeah, we're kind of like with those guys. You know, where there isn't going to be somebody to come rescue Magellan if you don't get back with your five ships too bad. Yeah. You know, uh, not that we're looking to do that for an adrenaline rush, but that's that's the risk you have to accept if you're going to explore. Yeah. On the other hand, on the other hand, I've had the privilege of being right at the cutting edge of robotics, you know, thanks to funding from NASA for the past 15 years. Awesome. And and so, you know, I do know what the issues are with robotics and I do know what the issue is with human life support. And so if you if you get into the question of what can you do in, in, in space exploration, okay? There's a couple of levels, you know. I, I talked about these in the initial stages in, the, in that TED conversation, and that is there are people who are trying to address this question of how do you get from Earth to orbit, okay? That's, that's a big question. Yeah. They're going to continue to fight that. There is a way that you can balance off that equation, and then that was the, the argument that I presented at TED, which is if you establish – a mining operation at the South Pole of the Moon and bring the raw consumable materials, basically water, frozen water, uh, back to low Earth orbit, you've now done something amazing. And it's you say to me, what the, what the big deal? You know, you brought some water back to, to Earth orbit. You know, why not bring it down to Earth? Well, first of all, it's not worth anything down on Earth unless you have, you know, 
a couple of people in Hollywood who would like to pay $50,000 a liter for the privilege of saying I'm drinking moon water. <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt, so, Matt, Matt Franklin would be gone out of business. Yeah, would, you, could, you could probably do that once or twice, but then it would lose its value. Yeah. Um, Mount Moon. So, but, 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 but if it's in orbit, okay, and if you listen to the TED argument, here, here's the thing in a nutshell. You're going to tip the equation by a factor of anywhere from 20 to 25. Since TED, we've actually rerun a lot of those calculations in much finer numerical detail, uh, and, and we believe that we can get the, um, the tipping point down to about 25 to 1. So what that means is if it costs you $25 to boost something from Cape Canaveral up to the space station, we could do it for $1. Okay? Not even Jeff Bezos, not Elon Musk, not the guys at, at – uh, at, uh, You there? Virgin Galactic, yeah, you know, none of those guys are going to come close to that kind of number. They mm-hmm. might knock off the the cost to orbit by a factor of two, maybe three, if they're super lucky. Okay, you know, the everybody was was saying, well, okay, SpaceX is in business and you know it's going to be cheap. Well, you now start to see that it's not such a a hundred percent guaranteed thing. Mm. You know, just just a couple of days ago, they lost a second rocket. Okay, mm. that's yeah, so that's that. part. That's part and parcel for the trade, okay? And, you know, there's going to be 25 or 100 or 1,000 Monday morning quarterbacks who will try to say what happened because they don't know what happened, but it's good to listen to them on the radio, right? Mm-hmm. right? Or you're going to be at SpaceX saying, okay, why did that happen and how much is it going to cost us to permanently resolve that problem? The same mm-hmm. thing with airlines, okay? But the problem is they are fighting the rocket equation, okay? And if you want to – if you want to see an interesting uh, discussion on this subject, uh, go into Google and type in the tyranny of the rocket equation, and you'll be in for a good read. Get a cup of coffee and, and read that, yeah. and you'll, under, you'll start to understand why it is so difficult to beat that number of $10,000 a kilogram. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so as, far as, I, as far as I understand it, so you're talking about here reducing the cost of um, you're talking about refueling in space. So you're actually taking the rocketing and the out-of-Earth orbit out of the equation, whereas Elon Musk is specifically focusing on reusable rocketry to, to try, try and bring that factor down. Is this? Am I on the right path here, Bill, just to make sure I'm not getting uh, confused? You're, 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 you're peripherally there, okay? So gotcha. the, the deal is this. Elon, as well as Jeff Bezos, as well as Virgin Galactic, okay, as well as... Uh, you know, Strato Launch and all the other people, Paul Allen, their game is to try to reduce the cost of getting to orbit. And their way of thinking about it is two, twofold. Okay, one is mass production, the way that cars initially started with Henry Ford's production line, mm-hmm. because the more you do, the more economy of scale you get. So if I launch a rocket every day, okay, I'm going to have a cheaper cost of operations than I will if I launch only one rocket every year. Yes, for sure. Right? Just because, you know, if that, if that rocket fails, you know, the, the implications of all that are so much greater. Whereas mm. I'm launching one every day. If I miss the flight, I put it on the next one. If yeah. that flight explodes, I put it on the next one yeah. and everything. Because they've got the operations cost down, they know exactly how to do it. Uh, you know, the Russians, in fact, were very good at this with the proton rocket. And the costs of actually launching from a proton were at least three or four times cheaper uh, than launching on U.S. and uh, ESA uh, rockets. But – once they discovered how to be capitalists, they immediately raised their rates to the same cost as the Western rockets. And this is the problem, okay? Everybody's fighting this same thing. So you're, you're looking at how efficient can I make it and 
The other thing is, can I save any pieces of those rockets? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so this idea of Elon Musk looking at trying to preserve the first stage, very clever. Okay, people have thought about that. Nobody's ever tried to do it for real except for him. Okay, and that's good. Mm-hmm. The other way to do it is the way Strato Launch and the way Virgin Galactic uh, are looking at it, and so is Jeff Bezos, which is to use a recoverable first stage that flies you up and then it flies home. Yep. Okay, in the, in the case of Strata Launch and, and Virgin Galactic, it's a, it's a winged vehicle. In the case of Bezos right now, it's a hovering uh, vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea is then you bring those back and you reuse those parts, and only what goes from there on uh, is what you're, you're concerned about. Eventually, you could think of potentially recovering most of those pieces. Now, there's nothing to say that they're all going to come back in a usable form. So there's going to be a certain amount of loss because – you know, if you have a damaged vehicle and they say, hey, this thing's been refurbished, buddy, you want to get on top of the rocket? I might say, hmm. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, 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 you maybe, the first maybe, I, maybe I'd like the shiny new one. You know, yeah, you yeah, don't know. Yeah, for I, sure. I, but, so, so they're fighting those Even two if things. the shiny new ones blow up in the air. Yeah, that's right. right not right, to mention right. the reusable so, so, versions. So regardless of how good they get at that, they are still fighting this problem of the cost in terms of the percentage of the payload to get you to orbit is mostly fuel. Okay? Yes, yes. To put a tiny amount of payload into orbit, it's mostly fuel. So here's where the equation flips on its head. What we were proposing at TED is if you bring the fuel back from the moon, you bring it back in the form of frozen water, and I could spend an hour or two telling you why, but you bring it back in the form of frozen water, you convert it into liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. There's multiple steps involved in there. Okay? And now you're capable of either A – refueling spacecraft that permanently reside in Earth orbit and take you to where you want to go. Think of it as a taxi. Yep. Or the stuff that you send up from down below only has dry weight, okay, and it's ready to be refueled. Yes. So if you do that, all of that fuel that you left off, guess what? That suddenly becomes payload. Yes. And if you work, gotcha. if you work out the mechanics, if we are successful in – establishing these gas stations in orbit, fuel depots, if you will, but not terrestrially uh, supplied, supplied from the moon, sure. mm-hmm. you suddenly get effectively a 20 to 1 increase in the, in the amount of useful payload that these guys can bring up. So it's a helping hand, if well, you will. Yeah. Now, nobody, if you talk to any of these entrepreneurs, nobody wants to even talk about this yet because they're too wrapped around the axle of trying to get their own problem solved. Mm-hmm. Okay? As you can see, SpaceX doesn't have it 100%. So they're all focused. They're not going to be thinking about going to the moon. And so, again, it's down to one of these deals where, you know, if there's a couple of billionaires that want to get together and put this next piece together, well, guess what? I've got the team and the plan to do it. We have a 500-page business plan. We are ready to go. And it's just a matter of trying to get there. Now, this is an even higher – Wow. Um, I'd love to read that business plan. Oh, so would I. I it's, have it's I have a, about thirty cents in my uh, yeah. in my bank account, so don't get your hopes up, Bill. I'm not yeah. going to be able to invest, but I actually <laughs> well, I reckon I'd read every page of that. Well, that there's, hang on, there's a dollar under this couch that I found before. <laughs> yeah. uh, ironically, the number to kick it off to to make it sustainable and continuing that is making money uh, is not too dif- different from what we calculated back for the TED conference in 2007, and the reason for that has been the reduced cost in launches the efficiency gain that has come from the reduction of uh, weight in uh, composite materials and things like that. And so even though prices have generally gone up, uh, the actual amount that you can put up uh, for that price uh, is, is comparable. So right now, the, the, the way we have been looking at it, and I'll just give you, you know, 15 seconds of, of business concepts here, is that it takes about $1.5 to $2 billion uh, to initiate 
the first phase. Beyond that, everything pretty much goes IPO and uh, and conventional uh, debt financing through large banks. Right. Uh, so these are these are standard corporate vehicles. But the the initial amount to trigger what I would refer to as the avalanche, you know, it's a it's an effect that I see all the time with sponsoring expeditions, and that is you start with an idea, and the idea has to be good, mm-hmm. right? It has to be a cogent, powerful idea. So we start, for example, and say, you know what? We're, we're going to put an international team together, and we're going to go to Cueva Cheve in 2017. And uh, if, we're, if we're successful here, uh, it's going to be the world's deepest cave. It'll be the equivalent of the highest mountain on Earth being discovered mm-hmm. in 2017. Awesome. You know? So what happens then is you, you start going down a list of what you have, what you need, and then you prioritize what the most expensive thing is that you need. And it's not always cash. Uh, frequently, it can be something like a piece of equipment. Okay, it could be a uh, methanol air fuel cell uh, that we would use to generate power beyond underwater tunnels. Um, things like that, and that's that's not just a, a, a making a case. That's an actual fact that we're looking at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get that most expensive sponsor on board, it could also be prestigious: the Explorers Club, National Geographic, Discovery Channel. You know, on down the line, Rolex. Okay, and we've had all of them. As, as primary sponsors, once you get that anchor tenant sponsor and people start to realize that this is going to go, there's an exponential curve of the number of sponsors on the bus versus the time left until the expedition leaves. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody is trying to jump on by the time you're a week away, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's getting those first ones so that you have the thing ready. But the point is, once that anchor tenant goes, it's an avalanche. The whole thing is triggered, and you know it's going to happen. So, and so then you can. Let me ask. Sorry to cut. You off, sorry to cut you off, Bill. Let me ask. Um, with getting these ten, uh, these these real foundation sponsors on, getting the big uh, the big fish, so that all the little fish will follow, or however you want to phrase it. How important is the actual ability to tell a story? So for yourself, um, you're a well-spoken man. You, your TED talk is great, but like the ability to convey a larger picture. Of we're trying to trying to go to Europa because we want to further humanity. We want to find life on another planet, or or, or you know the space uh, the the Apollo missions ended years and years ago. Um, we want to we want to reinvigorate working on the moon. Like you've got to frame it in a way that will get people passionate, right? Yeah, but you also don't want to use hyperbole, right? Okay, that's that's the one thing, and this is where. Some people step over the line, okay? And I, I won't name any names here, but I will tell you that anybody who thinks they're going to Mars in the next 30 years is using hyperbole, okay? There is no way to support that yet. Mm. That's a really, only, really upsetting. Yeah. There, there's, <laughs> there's, really only, there's only there's – well, okay, and, and the, 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 there's, there's a couple of numbers. Well, you can do it if you do it the way we talked about here is that is you get a bunch of billionaires together and they say, what? You know, let's just do it, yep. mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to do, you know, the the idea of the uh, transit by Mars, the fly by Mars, you know, send two people up and uh, have them go by, wave at Mars, and, and back they come, you know, three years later. To which I say, ho hum, mm-hmm. what have you done? You know, have you done any exploration? Yeah. You know, ex- exploration to me, this is this is where I, you know, this this gets into the <laughs> this gets into the holy words, you yeah. know, of of, ex- of exploration. To me, exploration is putting your foot. In places where nobody has ever gone before, Absolutely. that means a a surface related phenomena. It means landing on the planet and being there and picking up the sand, 
you know, I don't know if you if you've ever seen that movie Apollo thirteen, but yeah, there's yeah. a uh, yep. There's a great scene in there where they've realized that they're not going to be able to land and they're flying around the moon <laughs> and they come back to and they're looking out the window and the one guy says, look at that, you know, and, and meanwhile, I'm back there, Jim Lovell is, is having this flashback, you know, thinking that, you know, he should be down there kneeling down and picking up a handful of dirt and looking at it, you know, yeah. with his own two eyes, you know, well, I can't even begin to tell you how powerful that is. Well, that's, so, that's what I was about to say is uh, I couldn't think of anything worse than doing a flyby of, the, of Mars. Oh, exactly. We're having it in your line of sight and knowing... And not being able to step foot on it. Yeah. Yep. It's, right. it's more, so, for some, it's more frustrating than anything else. Oh, absolutely. So, so there is one thing that could be pulled off, okay? So let, let's, let's, we're talking far out now, okay? If, if a bunch of people were willing to put the kind of money up, okay... You could do a one-way mission to Mars. Now, this has been talked about for 25 years. Every, every couple of years, it comes up at a conference and somebody says, who would go on a one-way mission to Mars? And more and more people start to raise their hands, okay? So why would you do that? There's only one single reason, okay? And that is to prove that humanity can survive for a while uh, on another planet and to be sending back weekly telecasts saying, I'm on Mars, why don't you guys come join me? Okay. <laughs> now, from a sustainability standpoint, it's it's a dead end. Okay. And quite frankly, those people will die on Mars without ever seeing other humans. Okay. I'm being totally blunt here. I've, I've been exploring for 56 years. I know what it's about. And to do that, they aren't going to see resupply in our lifetime. All righty, guys. Before we uh, before we go any further, we're just going to quickly ma- make mention of our sponsors. So, yep. True Pride, guys. True Pride are a wealth creation service. Basically, we're working with a man, Tommy, and uh, we're trying to cr- crunch down on our budget so we can see where we're spending too much money, see where we can rein things in. And the idea is that we'll save one hundred fifty dollars a week, and that'll uh, it's at the cost of ninety seven dollars. So, basically. I during the week made a uh, at, with with the guy's help. I went and negotiated a new deal with my phone where I got four hundred dollars. Um, I got a new phone. I got the four hundred dollar um, early exit fee waived, and I also negotiated them down to get a way better plan that'll save me. My average phone bills were one hundred eighty dollars a month because I didn't have enough data. I negotiated with the guys using a script that um, Craig gave me, which got it down to one hundred twenty dollars, and I'll definitely never go over. So I'll save myself sixty dollars a month there alone. And I uh, got myself a new phone. Little things that you don't think about. Craig's got a million of them. The guys at True Pride to help you uh, help you get ahead. So, if you want to check them out, Tommy, what do they do? Well, they. So I just want to add on something as well. Um, some of those little things as well can be as simple as writing a goal saying you won't get a parking ticket for six months. And you may be asking, oh, you know, why do I need to pay for a service that'll uh, when I can just figure that out on my own? But you don't like you, the, the the service keeps you accountable. It uh, it hooks you up with some software called CashFit, which allows you to have a look and really really have a look at your budget and, and have a look at all the different areas that you spend. Um, gives you goals, gives you plans, it gives you um, ways to go about all those things, and it's absolutely fantastic. So just in my second week, I've already managed to save over sixty five dollars, and um, it's going up. It's fantastic. So www.truepride.com dot au forward slash advf book a call and if you decide to go ahead you get 297 dollars joining fee waived we're also brought to you by carve carve guys are where i get my assistance in the philippines so they're a company that house 100 or so assistants under the one roof they have specialists in all the things that you need they have all the programs that you need you pay these guys six dollars us or eight dollars australian per hour for their services i have two assistants for um adventure travel 
and one assistant man time you have for Adventure Fit Radio and just taking care of all the stuff that we don't need to take care of. And uh, it means you can upscale your business. You can do a lot more for a lot less or you can just simply use it to pay the money to get the stuff that you don't want to do done and then you can get so much more time back in your life. It's legitimately a game changer. Mm. If, you're, uh, if you want a better quality of life for yourself or you want to upscale your business and grow faster, you definitely should check out Carve. Head to www.carve.ph forward slash ADVF and you'll get 10 free hours on any project you choose. Here's the show again. What about the scientific breakthroughs though, Bill? Surely they're worth, um, surely they're, they're going to have um, the ability to do a lot of really important research on why Mars is the way that it is and if it was like Earth. Uh, or- I, 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 would, I would discount the, the drama of the level of scientific breakthrough that would result. Right. Okay. We've had a lot of systems on the ground right now, very sophisticated. None of them has yet come up with evidence of extant microbes. None of them. Mm. Okay. So Mars is a pretty harsh place, right? It is, it is coated <laughs> with oxidizing materials that are poisonous to humans what most people don't understand, if you watch the movie, uh, uh, gosh, what was it the just Martian. last fall? The Martian. The Martian, right? <laughs> Excuse me for the, the the memory fault there. We were we were like out in the middle of nowhere in Antarctica for four months, and we didn't see the movie until it came out. Yeah, Anyways, that's fair. That, <laughs> we'll that, movie, that, that movie, that movie, unfortunately, is a complete crock of hogwash. Right. Okay. Why? Because the radiation environment on the surface of Mars is eventually lethal after a couple of months. Yeah. Okay. The galactic cosmic radiation background that is hitting Mars, particularly the higher order ion complexes. Okay. These would be things from nuclear fusion explosions from stars skidding across, you know, the universe and the galaxy and then running into you, you know, at sublight speed and causing ionizing damage, okay, is serious. It's, it's more serious than anybody recognized. Right. There's the, the, the human support community is just starting now to get their hands around this. To give you an idea, a survivable human mission package going to Mars will have to have between a 5 to 10 meter thickness of water around that human crew at all times. Right. To Didn't protect them from to protect them from mainly galactic cosmic radiation, but also from solar uh, flares, okay? The, the environment on the surface of Mars is about 40% of straight-on galactic cosmic radiation because the atmosphere is so thin. Mm. So that habitat that you saw with the, <laughs> with the, uh, the plastic sheeting and duct tape, forget it. It's not going to no, do four the job. Months, <laughs> four months, he's dead. You know, that's, that's all there is to it. So You made, 100, I, I, you made 150 souls. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so Come on, Bill, I don't yeah, have to be running yeah, yeah. the show, mate. So, so ironically, the only way you're going to survive on Mars is if you look into something in the form of lava tubes on the side of Olympus Mons and other similar volcanoes like it, of which there are images from orbit that are incontrovertible. There are lava tubes on Mars. So, if you want to avoid the GCR, you got to go underground. How interesting right. is that? Going back to caveman life, living the molish life. Right. So that's it. But the other thing on all this that, that we didn't get back to here is that to field that mission to Mars, you're looking at roughly 700 metric tons in low Earth orbit. Do you remember that number I mentioned a little while back that the space launch system? And this is, this is at the best of all best hope of the engineers 
that it'll reach, okay, maybe within 10 or 15 years, would be 120 metric tons to low Earth orbit. Okay, right. guess, guess what? You'd need six of those to build that thing and assemble it together, which means you would have to assemble it somewhere on orbit. So that is pushing things in the direction they have to go. A lot of people are wondering what they're going to do with the International Space Station in five or ten years. The answer is you convert it into a staging dock where you do industrial assembly of longer-range rockets in orbit. Cool. That is a perfect, perfect use for the International Space Station. Probably should be turned over to a private consortium to run it. Yeah. So why does the International Space Station – what's the problem with the International Space Station remaining the International Space Station? I'm, not, I'm unaware. Uh, well, it's, it's, it costs money to keep things up there. Um, and uh, – there's this question of where's the cost-benefit ratio. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, most people will, will say, well, you know, why do we go to space? Well, the, the initial answer is because we want to know what the heck is out there. And the space programs of the various governments of the world, whether it's NASA, ESA, Roscosmos, you know, all of those people uh, are out there doing that because there is an interest in the science and the exploration. Unfortunately, uh, human exploration has fallen behind largely because of this problem with the rocket equation, mm. right? And until we crack that, humans aren't going too far or they're only going to go very rarely and their likelihood of survival is low. So the bottom line is the only way to get past all this is to do what I talked about in TED, which is to go and establish resource extraction uh, systems at the South Pole or the North Pole of the Moon, bring it back to Earth orbit, use the ISS as a dry dock in orbit to build the stuff that you want to send out elsewhere. That is a sustainable system. It actually will make money for the private companies that mm -hmm. put that stuff into place. What is the benefit of that? The benefit is it starts to radically reduce the cost of doing anything in space by a factor of 20 to 25 to 1. Okay? Not 20 to 25 percent, but 20 to 25 to 1. Mm, yep. Right? So that's, that's where the first big change comes from. And then eventually – Basically, if I were you know, king, I'd be putting a lot of money into novel methods for propulsion dynamics to try to figure out ways that we can get off a, a, a deep gravity well like Earth and into Earth orbit without using rockets. Mm. So that's, a, that's an area for physics research. Right. Hey, uh, Bill, I want to come back to, um, to Europa and, um, and, and moon mining in that sense. Let's just say that we can get all these, all these people together, all these billionaires, and fund it and get the drills up there and all that sort of stuff, um, which I'd be so amazed and obviously yourself um would, would love to see what do you expect to find on europa um so that's a that's a that's a darn good question um the there has been spectacular uh, advances in what we've been seeing uh, lately from various spacecraft galileo and, and others mm. uh as to the fact that a lot of these moons are dynamic uh so for example if you look up enceladus uh, you'll find out that there are actually uh, geysers, vents of uh, water uh, wow. from deep within in the in the subsurface of the planet are being pulsed out, uh, just like you know geysers in Yellowstone National Park and elsewhere around the world, uh, and they're blowing off uh, material that suggests that there may be hydrocarbons uh, present. Now, what they have not seen in any of that is anything that would be conclusively indicative of life. So right. when you talk when you talk to the astrobiology community, you're gonna you're gonna hear two words. Okay, one is biomarkers. Okay, mm -hmm. and the other one is 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 extant life. Sure. Okay. So the first one says, well, living organisms produce metabolites. Okay. You 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 and I and everybody else on the planet eats food and they put waste out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And those things are 
represented by changes in the molecular chemistry of the material. Yep. So, for example, if we had microbes uh, in the surface ice of Europa that were consuming something for energy, they would be producing something on the side. What would that be? That might be methane, okay? Uh, could be something else. There are, for example, sulfur-eating bacteria uh, on, on Earth. We've seen them in hydrothermal springs. Um, so that kind of stuff can go on, but we call those things biomarkers. When we talk about extant life detection, that is, that's the gold ring, okay? That's what everybody would love to see. Sure. And so, so the answer is like this. Just imagine you're on the surface of Europa, okay? And you got to get out of there fast because the radiation environment is so incredibly intense that you aren't going to last long. So you harden the, set, the lander that's going to be there because it still has to have communications back to Earth to let you know what's going on. And then you send this ice-penetrating robot, this cryobot, uh, down through the ice. Uh, we have done calculations right now on how to build a 100-kilowatt uh, fission-based uh, thermal reactor that will fit within a, a 30-centimeter diameter uh, cryobot. That's actually a pretty small diameter system. Wow. Uh, that, is a, that is a launchable system, okay? And that could actually get through the European ice cap. How long will it take to get through? Right now, at, at 100 kilowatts uh, for a 30-centimeter probe, we're looking at probably a speed of in the order of a, a couple hundred meters a day at most because oh. the, Europa, the European ice is pretty cold. It's, it's at 100 Kelvin. Uh, so if you, if you type that into an online converter, you'll see that in centigrade, it's pretty, it's pretty darn cold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's cold enough that you're almost at liquid nitrogen temperatures. Wow. Um, so and it's also in vacuum, so you got to get through that and into that. And, and as you go down, eventually it's going to start to warm up because if there is an ocean, and we know there is, um, and, and I, we could go into a big discussion on that. Sure, um, it'll it'll be about zero degrees C when you break through. Okay, right. maybe so maybe, maybe minus ridiculously cold. No, no, maybe minus one, two, or three degrees C. Right, uh, because of salt being in, in, in the water, and uh, there is evidence that there's likely to be salt ions in the water. They've seen this in the plumes and Enceladus. So the the case for a salty ocean is 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 pretty good. Okay. Uh, the only question is how deep it is, how deep it ice is to get to it, and then when you get through. So what we have been looking at, uh, and this is a project that NASA funded called Spindle. Um, it it actually looks at a controlled. Uh, depth system where you're melting down with a nuclear reactor uh, and the vehicle is paying out both the communication and a strength element behind it. So it's going to have upwards of 100 kilometers worth of this stuff on board. And when it breaks through into the ocean, what we do is we drop that vehicle slowly down through the ocean, measuring what's what the environment is like. How strong are the ocean currents? What way do they flow? How do they vary with time? Same thing for temperature, same thing for density, salinity, uh, things that would ultimately affect the design of vehicles that you would want to put into uh, that environment. And then you reel it all the way down to the silicate core of the moon. Okay? Wow. So then, then, then when we do that, not only have we found out how thick the ice is, we've also found out how deep the ocean is and – whether it's some raging tidal thing, you know, where you've got, you know, 20 knot waves, you know, pulsing around the planet or whether it's a nice static calm lagoon, mm. you know, where, the, where there's microbes hanging around every thermal vent on the bottom. And the general consensus is that because there's an ocean at all, it is occurring because the moon is being ripped and pulled by the Jovian gravity field. Uh, it's got a highly eccentric orbit. So you can just imagine squeezing a tennis ball 
mm-hmm. you know, every second, okay? And eventually, if you do that enough, you'll notice that the tennis ball is starting to get warm, yes. right? So what happens then is there's tidal flexing in the, in the silicate core, cracks form, heat comes out those silicate cracks, and you start getting things like what we have on the mid-Atlantic and the mid-ocean Pacific ridges uh, called black smokers, thermal vents, uh, things like that. And guess what? Microbes like to be around that kind of energy. And if you have microbes, well, guess what? Higher forms of life are going to prey on those microbes. Mm-hmm. So the only question is, was Europa around long enough with the right constituents in the rock and in the water and the right amount of heat coming out to allow life to independently develop there? Oh, yeah. And what, oh, what do okay. we think? So that's, that's the game. Now, yeah. if you dr- – so if you, if you drop a cryobot through and go all the way to the floor, unfortunately, you're, you're on this string. You can go up and down the string as many times as you want you know, to find out how these tides change with time over the course of years, right? But that's as far as you can go. You've got a single point that you can look through there. If you really want to find out what's going on, you've got to go back with a bigger cryobot and deploy a nuclear-powered autonomous underwater vehicle. And we have, we have built prototypes for, for each of these systems. We're further along on this planet than anybody in terms of research labs building this kind of gear. Mm. So you're ready, ready to go. We are. We are. Um, and, and I don't, I don't say that with, with hubris. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a lot of very good people working with us. It's a matter of assembly of the right teams, but the basic points have been proved. You know, Somebody could say, well, you haven't actually built a reactor. I'll say, well, yeah, well, the, the people we work with have designed a lot of space reactors. So there's not – there's nothing in this in the way of physics that will stop this mission. Right. Is it going to be is it going to be complex? Hell yeah, it'll be probably the most complex intellectual undertaking, you know, since the Manhattan Project or the Apollo Project or mm. something similar mm. to that, you know, the human genome project. So, to do that, you know, is it going to be risky? Heck yeah, it could bust at any point along the way. But if you don't try, That's you know, right. then it's it, where's so the important. human where's, Where's the human spirit in that? So, so here's the kicker, guys. You know, so let's suppose you do that, right? We, we go down there and we put that nuclear-powered AUV down there. The first thing you do is you drop to the floor and you begin radially mapping out the core of that moon, right? Whether it's Europa or Enceladus, I don't care, mm-hmm. right? But Europa has got everybody's interest right now. And it's, it certainly has an ocean and it probably has the highest probability for life right now. Okay. Right. Um, yep. There's going to there's gonna be other tribes. The Enceladus tribe will argue vehemently that you should go to Enceladus, and the Titan crowd is going to argue that you should go to Titan. But they're all good people, okay? And I know lots of them. So. And then they're, they're all, all my friends. Out, you can say what you want. <laughs> they're, they're all my friends, and they all just happen to be in different different tribes. It's like being in different fraternities, you know? Yeah, yeah that's and, right. And, and so you do that, right? And so – on that vehicle, on that mobile system that's going out and it's mapping and it's looking, it's sniffing, you know, and it finds something. Let's, it goes through all these various stages. We, we call it a hierarchical detection process. Okay, so the first thing you're doing is you're looking for sensor data that tells you if there's anything changing really radically. Is the temperature gone up? Did the salinity jump? Is there sulfur? You know, anything like that. And then you follow that. The vehicle sniffs it out like a bloodhound and you go down there and then you start doing things like looking at it with spectroscopes like fluorescent spectroscopy because guess what? Microbes that happen to be living tend to fluoresce at certain wavelengths. If you see that, you say, hey, man, there's something going on here. The next thing you do is you go in there with a 3D microscope and you pull a sample in and you start looking at it. Now is where things get interesting, okay? So if you're really clever, that 3D microscope can analyze and look and figure out what the shape and the size and these things of whatever is in that sample. Let's suppose you find a microbe, okay? 
here's the $64,000 question. Is it your open or did you bring it with you on your spacecraft? Yeah. Right. There's a, there's a whole, there's a whole sub study field called planetary protection Mm. that tries to reduce to as low as possible the amount of microbes that you carry, but it's really hard to make that number zero. Right. (sighs) So the tough part is in that microscope or in a molecular sequencer, if we can build them small enough to put on that vehicle, how do you know it didn't come from Earth? So the key is to look for features that don't match any mm. Earth genome, right? And the best we're going to be able to do, I think, for right now is to try to build artificially intelligent systems that parse through that data and say, it looks like it's of this class, but I can't go any further. And then we come back and we uplink that data to the lander. It beams it back to Earth, and the scientists all gather around to look at that image or that video clip. Video is much more expensive than a single image sure. in terms of the, the cost of, of mission just because of the power requirements and the time to send it. Um, so it's, but not, then they it's not quite as easy as uh, just going down to the ocean and seeing a nice little aqua <laughs> ET just yeah, swimming, yeah. swimming by. Well, and going, well, okay, we go. okay, so, so, so <laughs> nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody that I know <laughs> will in public say that that's a possibility. Right. Okay. But I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If we're going to have cameras on these things – and even before you got to the microscope stage, if you came in following one of these, say, a sulfur scent to a, 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 a hydrothermal vent, and you saw macro life, let's say, you know, a micro go, a goldfish, uh, shrimp, you know, <laughs> any, any, anything of like that, you know, yeah. that would be. We, found, know, we found Dory. We found Dory. Any, <laughs> any, any kind of krill would do just fine. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It doesn't have to be anything out of, you know, a James Cameron movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. <laughs> but, but, but I can tell you that if you saw something like that in an image down there, I think it would make everybody stop and pause on the world yeah, for a bit. Yeah, it definitely would. Yep. 100%. Because, because that would not have come from Earth. And then you've got to ask yourself a whole bunch of other questions. Well, you know, about exactly. If, it, if that's out there, then – who else is out there? Well, yeah. And are they smart? And are they smarter than us? You know, so now you're getting into the whole Carl Sagan, you know, uh, yeah. a regime. But yeah, it's just so interesting. Yeah, people would definitely be asking those questions if that is out there and that's within our own solar system. Then what's going to be on Andromeda? Let alone a galaxy billions and billions and billions of light years away. There's got to be other stuff, you know. And that's what. I God, if I was a billionaire, I would be right behind you, my friend. <laughs> I think it's the biggest question. For me, it's always been the biggest question. Yeah. I always think back of, um, I used to think back into ancient Egypt and think um, how the pyramids were being built and how societies rose and how we evolved. But yep. at the end of the day, for me and for most people, Bill, I would, I would assume would be thinking that, I mean, is there life out there? Are we, are we alone? There's probably the greatest question that we that we have. How did we get here, and are we alone? So, yep. I think. Um, and, 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 and you have two choices to answer that question. You can wait for the governments to do it in fifty years, <laughs> or a bunch of us can get together privately and find out in seven years. That's awesome. Oh, that's so cool. So, so let me just. We we know you got to get out of here at, at some point um, soon, Bill. So let's let's drop the Encellus bit for for a tick. Say let let's. Focus on the moon because that's we need. We need the the moon's the lead domino, right? If we can get the moon mining happening, then everything else becomes a lot easier. So that's the key. T- tell us how how will that actually play out? Uh, the one question I want to know is how would you actually get the equipment up there to start a major mining production 
on the surface of the moon. That to me, that's the bit I'm like, I, I can't logistically figure that out. Well, so when when we gave that TED lecture, we we had basic numbers, but what we did not have was a completely developed business plan. Mm-hmm. Since that time, we have developed that along with a what we would call an enterprise uh, simulator. Okay, and this is a very very sophisticated uh, piece of code. Uh, that basically comes in and looks at how to derive, how to define what the least amount of mass is that you have to put in Earth orbit to start this process. Okay. Yep. So let me let me let me kind of try to uh, paint it out in a, in a simpler fashion here. Let's suppose that you want to uh, start a travel service from Melbourne to Sydney. Mm-hmm. Okay. You could do a couple of things. One is that you might scrape together a bunch of money from Kickstarter and then you go out and you say, well, okay, how many people do I have to shuffle a day to make any money? And so you'd say, well, people are willing to pay this amount of money. And then you go out and you say, how much does it cost to operate a plane? Okay. So you could do a couple of things. The first mm-hmm. is you could go and see if anybody will lease you a plane, will rent you a plane. That's one possibility. There might be somebody who would sell you an older plane. Yep. Right. So you could take the risk of, of buying an older plane, or you could try to say, you know what, I'm gonna just gonna get a smaller plane, right? And let's say you work this out to where the cost of transit for you being a pilot and taking two passengers in a Cessna 152 would make a business. Mm-hmm. Okay. What would you do? You'd go to Kickstarter and you'd raise the money to buy that Cessna 172, and then you'd start announcing it. Right, yep. and you you would start taking people. Well, if everything went right, you would find that demand would start to build, and you would be making money. Okay, let's let's say for for every trip, you know, you made a hundred dollars, and you put that in the bank. Well, what do you do with that money? Okay, if if the demand is there and you're always booked, what does that tell you? It means you need another plane, mm-hmm. right, or a bigger plane. So the easiest way to do it is to say my model works right now. I'm going to go and just buy another Cessna 170 or 152. And now you get another pilot and now you have two flights flying at the same time and you're taking twice as many people and now you're getting $200 a day, mm-hmm. right? Well, so that is called scalable industry, yep. right? And, and that is the approach that we have taken. What is the least amount of stuff that has to get up there to start bringing stuff back from the moon to where you can sell it for a profit? Gotcha. Yeah. And, and, I can't tell you the exact numbers because they are proprietary, okay? But it is a lot lower than you might think. Mm-hmm. And so the key is if you were going to, to, to work out these stages, we've, we've got it done in phases. The first phase is you have to prospect, okay? This is a robotic operation and we are well suited to pull this one off, right? The idea is you go down to the places where you think it is most likely – to have the stuff you're looking for, which we start with water, but there's a lot of other volatiles that are really useful in space as well. And I, I, won't, I won't bore you with the, the mm-hmm. discussion on that. But yep, but there's more money. So, to the, be, question, to be so the question is, you know, if you were a gold miner, would you go out into a place where there's a sand quarry? No. You'd go to a place where the ore was the richest that you could possibly find, so you have to do the least amount of work to get it out, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. So the purpose, the purpose of a prospecting mission is to go and find out where is the greatest concentration of what we're looking for that's at the shallowest possible depth. And we expect all this to be within 5 to 10 meters of the surface, okay? And you'd have to go back and perhaps listen to the TED Talk or we could, you know, we could get into the discussion. But in 30 seconds or less, here's how it works. 
over the course of four billion years, asteroids and comets have been smacking into the moon. When they hit, it's a hypervelocity impact. The energy vaporizes the entire comet or the asteroid. And a lot of these things carry a lot of water with them. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you get this big cloud of water vapor that's been put into orbit around the moon. So what happens? It cools off and becomes snow, right? And it huh. invariably, and invariably, statistically, falls over every square meter of the moon. Well, wow. if, you, if you happen to be in the uh, equatorial regions, which is where all of the Apollo landings took place, the sun will bake it off into space and you'll never see it again, okay? But if it happens to end up down in the polar regions – where there are very deep craters where the sun never shines, excuse the pun, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that snow will fall on the ground and it will stay there for billions of years. Mm. So think of this like marine sedimentary buildup to form rock strata that eventually becomes mountains as the marine area is pushed up. So over time, all kinds of asteroidal materials and comets are going to hit. So in between one comet that lays down some snow you're going to have a rocky asteroid that hits and you lay down a layer of rock dust interweaving all the way up, some a little thicker than others, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of the prospector is to spatially in 3D sample these various craters that we believe are the hotspots and give us the real answer quantitatively. This is where it is densest. It's going to be the easiest to get. Here's the constituency of it. You, know, you just scoop it up, you bake it, you heat it, and you get the water. So that's, that's point one. Point two – is you do something to use a, a NASA phrase called risk reduction testing. And that is you take all of the pieces that you're going to put on the moon and all of the pieces that you need in Earth orbit up into Earth orbit, probably in the vicinity of the International Space Station, just because that's a safe haven where if something goes wrong, you can abort your mission and, and go over there and hopefully hit your ride home. Yep. Right. So the idea is to put all the pieces up there. Then what you start doing is, is where things get very interesting. We bring up fuel in the form of water. We demonstrate that you can crack that water in orbit to form rocket fuel, fuel an empty vehicle that we have that can land on the moon and start cycling pieces up there. Okay? The first things that you send up are purely robotic, and we seed lunar orbit with a couple of micro relay sats okay? so that we can have you know, gigabit per second Ethernet links uh, from Earth to the bottoms of these craters. The reason for that is then we can teleoperate these robotic systems uh, to do the initial mining, bring it over, and process that material so that by the time you're ready to send humans up there, you've got a lot of your life support already in place, right. already landed. So why do you need humans? You need humans because robots break. Yeah. Okay? And I can, I can say this with authority because I've been building robots for over 26 years, you know, and I know what the deal is. I know sure. how to – to make them work in rugged environments. But I can tell you there's lots of experimentation going on in self-repairing robots, okay, quote, mm-hmm. unquote. Yep. Uh, I can tell you that every one of those tests is constrained in a laboratory, not a real environment. Okay, The term that you need to use is unstructured environment, which means you don't know what the hell is going to happen, right? So suppose you get down there and you find out that uh, the bearings that you chose on those robots uh, – don't like the, the 30 degrees Kelvin temperature at the bottom of those craters and they start breaking, right? What are you going to do? Well, one thing is that you could start doing tests back on Earth, you know, to find out why it did it. And you're going to discover maybe that your tests back on Earth before you went weren't high fidelity because mm-hmm. you didn't have the same material 
that's in the bottom of the crater, some form of lunar glass dust that's submicron in size is chewing up your ceramic bearing, mm-hmm. you know, and you, and you couldn't have predicted it. So you have to come up with some way to deal with that. So one of the things you bring back is material from the bottom of the crater that's causing your robots to fail. Or you bring spares and the people go in there, bring the robots back to a workshed and fix them. So we still, with our eyes and hands and minds, can outcompete any robot out there. Yeah, we've got things like Watson who can answer questions and stuff like that, you know, in limited fields, play chess, you know, and stuff. It's getting there, okay? AI is getting there, but nobody, nobody has built a robot that can repair itself in an unstructured setting yet. Yeah. And that's where the people come in. So the idea is if you get this, you get this whole thing going, you know, starting the minimalist train of movement, you're making money. What do you do? You duplicate the same system. You have more people and more vehicles that transit from Earth orbit to the lunar lander and bring the material back. So it's just like buying more Cessna 172s, right? Mm. And at that point, because you're doing effectively industrial engineering, you can ask the question, how many people per robot do I need? And eventually what you'll find is the number of ro- people per robot's number starts to go down, mm-hmm. right? Because the reliability of the robots goes up. It's better to not have people up there because they're going to have to be hiding under about five meters of rock dust anyways from that galactic cosmic radiation, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what paves the way for making it cheap to be up there. And at that point, where you want to go as a human will be a lot easier to get to than we can certainly do today. Yeah. Right. So, um, Bill, that was a, a very interesting answer. So you've given us, um, you've given us a snapshot into you, you want to be one of the guys that uh, really d- d- takes the next big leap in searching for life on other planets, Europa, Titan, Enceladus, uh, mining, uh, mining the moon and setting up an international base. So we're going we're gonna to start to wrap it up because we know you've got to get out of here. But there's one question that I wanted to ask you uh, before, before we do, and that is, so looking back, say, say you've, you've, you've passed on and, and uh, it's a couple of hundred years in the, in the future or whatever, on your gravestone or, or in, on your uh, Wikipedia page for say, what would you like it to read? What is the dream adventure, the dream success for Bill Stone? <laughs> what, what, what is the likely epitaph versus what would be the dream epitaph? <laughs> Let's go the dream. Let's yeah. go the dream one. We don't want to hear the likely one. <laughs> Worked at McDonald's. <laughs> 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 yeah, the, the, the more pragmatic one is he tried hard <laughs> and, and fought the system you know? Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know the dream one would be that uh, we were able to connect with a couple of ultra wealthy people who want to leave a legacy who want to change the future in a positive way and we all banded together and you know what we did change it you know we opened the space frontier by showing that it's possible to go out and extract resources from another world, the moon, okay, and make it a successful business. And why is that? It's not because I'm a capitalist, okay? It's because making a successful thing in space that is a positive return on investment means the creation of an entirely new economy, one that is boundless, one that is not strapped by the limited space of the earth. Yeah. If you look at the cause for wars – on earth they are largely because of limited space and larger denser population Mm -hmm. okay and so if you have a escape valve which is what space is more and more of us who don't like what we see here 
will have a place to go on the frontier. And that, to me, would be the legacy I'd love to see. That's that we awesome. were able to finally open that door. It's amazing. I really hope... Uh, I really... It seems that you're on the right path, and I really hope you find the uh, the right person, the 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 Elon Musk or the the Jeff Bezos. I know they're obviously in their own fields, but I, I don't know that many billionaires. I can't rattle off their names, but I hope you find the right person, Bill, because um, it's just I don't think there's anything more important, more important. in, uh, in yep. exploration. So, hey, Bill, have you got a have you got a couple of minutes to answer three questions from me, three questions from Tommy before we wrap it up? All right, keep them short. All right, so uh, your favorite travel destination you've been to on the planet? Favorite destination? Uh, I don't travel. I, I, I go on mission-driven projects. Well, <laughs> you, can, you can ask my wife. Favorite, in the world. favorite, favorite mission-driven <laughs> project? Uh, I, I, have to, I have to say uh, uh, the dry valleys in Antarctica are phenomenal. Mm. It, it, it's, it's, it's about as close to being on Mars as you're going to get on Earth. Awesome. That's a good answer. Okay, second one is your dream travel or mission destination. Yeah, we'll rephrase them for you. <laughs> All right, that's that's easy. Uh, uh, being one of the crew, uh, going to the setup on the South Pole of the Moon. Beautiful. Cool. That would be cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, have you got any books that you recommend to people? Ones that I've written or ones that other people have written? <laughs> uh, you can plug your books if you like, or you can nah, look, look, like a book that's um, that's really positively impacted your life, if any. Wow. Yeah, it would have been good if you'd given me a day to answer that. Yeah, sorry. It's the first time I've, today's the first time I've thrown that question. I changed, it used to be three things you have with you on a desert island, but I changed it out of whim today, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, people could get on and list books of poetry and stuff like that. Uh, I, I, I would have to say stuff going back as far as like Gerard O'Neill, um, you know, talking about, uh, space society you know the possibility of putting large groups of people uh, in in orbit i would say that's that's probably some of the more influential i mean i most of my reading is is confined to technical uh, yeah. volumes and and so you know i could i could recommend technical volumes to you <laughs> if you if anybody is out there that wants to learn uh technical facts about the moon um i can uh, i can give you two uh books both well actually uh, there, there's three of them but uh if you look up uh, Paul Spudis, S-P-U-D-I-S, Paul has written two very fine books uh, about resources on the moon, uh, and it's very up-to-date, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's got some nice history of why uh, NASA isn't going to do it. <laughs> right. uh, Paul's, a very, Paul's a very outspoken man. Um, you know, He works within the system, but he's not uh, restrained to say what he really thinks. Uh, the other guy would be uh, the last astronaut uh, to leave uh, the moon, uh, Jack Schmidt, okay. uh, Harrison, Harrison Schmidt. Uh, and he uh, uh, wrote a book. I believe it is called "Return to the Moon." And uh, the uh, the nice part about that is uh, it's written from the former or the view of a former Apollo astronaut who actually walked on the moon. Uh, but it also goes into a lot of the uh, legality of uh, setting up a industrial operation on the moon. Uh, Jack has his own views of what you can mine up there to make money with. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a totally different idea. I'm more aligned with uh, Paul Spudis uh, and. Uh, and we are on my side, you know, more aligned with industrial making it happen rather than talking about the, the scientific merits or, uh, you know, talking about it in a, a technical sense. Cool. So that's a long, long-winded answer. Sorry. No, no, that's all right. That's good. That'll all be in the show notes for the listeners too. So all the references to books and interesting stuff that we've talked about. So I'll throw over to Tommy. He's got three questions. Then we'll wrap it up. Hey, uh, Bill. What's uh, what's some stuff you like to do in your downtime or your when you've got three seconds of, of spare time? <laughs> 
Uh, well, I work out about an hour a day. Um, oh, nice. So uh, I, you know, most of our expeditions, uh, in, as far as deep caves go, um, we've got Olympic class athletes, you know, wow. who are in their twenty-five to thirty-five year prime, and I've got to be able to uh, be a productive member of any one of those teams yeah. that are going down. And so you got to stay fit. And so I've just made it a part of my life uh, to to keep up. Absolutely. And uh, I've never I've never regretted an hour I've spent in the gym. Absolutely. Uh, like, just just did a 150 kilometer bike run here two weeks ago, and uh, it's uh, you know it's just that that's that's what I do. Now, now, the other thing is uh, is music. You know, I play for two bands, and uh, I'm uh, very much into uh, rock guitar and solo leads on guitar. <laughs> awesome. do, you, do you sing as well? Uh, yeah, I sing a couple of blues songs. Oh, cool. We should um we should get together or they can oh, oh, oh cool yeah cool. I'll just get a little bit excited there <laughs> oh that's uh <laughs> got a little bit excited all right um uh big inspirations growing up Bill what was maybe, maybe give us your best uh or your biggest inspirational role model oh well that was that was easy that was the one that led me down the down the primrose path to uh, <laughs> higher education and that was uh, uh Neil Armstrong and Buzz uh, Aldrin yes. landing on the moon um, yes I, I I know Buzz personally oh wow. Um, and to, uh, you know, to the first time I met him, it was like, it was like, you know, <laughs> should I get on my knees? Yeah. And, and, and the other thing that you find, and I see this all the time with people who have never met uh, before any of the Apollo astronauts or any astronauts, is that they, you find them looking at their feet. Mm. And do you, do you know why? No. Because those feet walked on the moon. Oh, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a visceral thing, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I sometimes still find myself doing it, you know, if, if, if I'm around him, but, uh, That's you know, that, those two guys just, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just them. Okay. It was the whole NASA mission that made that possible. Mm. And, and, you know, I was 14 years old when I saw that and oh, yeah. it was like, I want to do that, you know, and that was it, you know, and once, once you read what these people did. You know, the fact that Buzz was a PhD, you know, uh, from MIT, you know, I said, that's what I want to do. And so I went on for 12 years of, you know, undergraduate and grad school and got a PhD in engineering and went off and for nine years applied to the uh, the astronaut corps. And, you know, eventually it was uh, told that I, I wasn't the material they wanted because I was too independent. <laughs> wow. Um, that's... But, uh, yeah, those, those guys certainly uh, – and there have been lots of other inspirations. You know, I, I've met at Hillary. Uh, lots of other very fine explorers wow. and uh, it's uh, seeing these people and how they live their lives and understanding that you know you go after what you dream after mm. as hard as you can and you don't get bummed out if you don't get there yeah exactly yeah that's that's the key from all of these people um, so cool. yeah that's 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 a couple yeah, definitely. I really like that when you say you don't get bummed out if you don't get there because it's just the dream and you've got to enjoy the, the journey itself. Hey, uh, Bill, um, if you could have three people dead or alive to dinner, who would they be and why? And obviously your family is allowed to be there and all, all those all those cliche people, they're all allowed to be there. <laughs> dead or alive? Well, most of the ones that I've wanted to meet that are alive, I've met. <laughs> oh, how good is that? That's pretty lucky. <laughs> just a little bit um, lucky. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I travel a lot, and uh, and you know, when you work in the kind of things that we do, you tend to meet a lot of interesting people, yeah. and, and so that's you know, there might be one or two that I'd like to have a you know a conversation with. Um, uh, dead people, wow, uh, there's uh, there's some truly great ones back there. Um, you know, you'd have to think like, for example, uh, Oppenheimer. 
you know, from mm. World War II, the head of the head of the uh, Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb project. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I, I came within a hair's breadth of uh, meeting Edward Teller when he was alive, uh, the inventor of the hydrogen bomb. <laughs> and, you know, now you say, well, why do you want to do that? Why do you be interested in making bombs? No, no, it's just that the guy made a breakthrough. Intellectual. That was so unobvious, you know, and, and to, to understand the thought processes behind that is something I'd love to talk to somebody about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you can always go back and say, well, I'd like to, uh, I used to say, well, I'd like to meet some of these original, um, you know, golden age exploration people like Columbus and, um, you know, Cortez and Pizarro. But the problem is, the more I read about that era, the more I become. Put off by these people. Yeah, they weren't um, all together. Um, they weren't all together great, uh, great fellows. No, they were. They were. They were, not, they were. In fact, they were not. Great. They were the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> they were terrible. They would, like. Yeah, they sucked. <laughs> they would rank right up there with Hitler today. Yeah, hundred percent. Know? Yeah. I'm sorry to say that. There's a lot of people around the world who might say, "Hey, these guys are historical figures." Well, they were pretty brutal historical figures. Absolutely, great genocide. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, I, I, I would have to change it and, and say, you know, uh, Cook. Uh, yep, would yep. have been a great one uh, to meet. Um, oh, I would have loved to have met Shackleton. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and there, there is a, is a beautiful study in an individual who is focused yet controlled and understands that the pursuit of a record is not worth the life of you and your team members. Mm-hmm. That's the power of Shackleton. He was within sixty miles of the South Pole and said, "You know what, guys, we're not going to make it. That's mm-hmm. awesome. We got it. We we got to turn back." And he went back and he wrote it up and he lived, you know, and Scott didn't. And so, you know, there's a lot there. That guy was a, a fantastic leader. Mm. And, you know, I've read all of his books. Um, there, that's, that's probably – I would probably put him up as, as the highest right. that I'd like to meet of, of all the people who aren't here anymore. Is that why you named your um, company Sh- uh, Shackleton Mining or was it because of the Shackleton Crater? Which ca- was it chicken uh, no, or the no, egg? No, no, no. Yeah, there's a lot of people who ask that question. No, it's, it's actually Shackleton Crater, which was named after the man. But – the, the the mining company is targeted at that crater. That's, that's the, what I that's thought. The yeah. High, yeah, that's the highest probability of a place to uh, set up a successful system. But sure. you probably would have named it Shackleton Mining yeah, anyway, even if, it, even if it was going up oh, yeah. the the Bill Kirk yeah, crater. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whoever whatever the name of that crater was would have been the name of the company. In fact, oh, if right. you went to the north, uh, it would be the uh, the Perry <laughs> Crater <laughs> on yeah, the right. north pole of the moon. The Kramer crater. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, um, Bill, is there anything you'd like to plug? So your website where they can find out about your projects, um, social media, is anything you need to uh, get out there? Uh, now's your time. There's, there's two websites you can look at. Uh, one is our company. It's uh, Stone Aerospace, S-T-O-N-E-A-E-R-O-S-P-A-C-E.com. Uh, a lot of stuff on robotics there. Uh, if you go to uh, usdct.org, uh, that's the United States Deep Caving Team, uh, you'll get a lot of uh, information on uh, deep caving expeditions over the years. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Bill. Like Loved I said, it, it was um, it's awesome. one of the – your uh, your TED Talk really struck a chord with me yeah. when I watched it uh, a, a while ago now. And um, and I – yeah, you were one of the one of the, the first pers- uh, people that I actually wanted to speak to just because I was so fascinated with what you're doing. So I uh, really appreciate your time. And, All right. Uh, Excellent. Great. Cool. Pleasure talking to you guys. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. That's a wrap. Alrighty, guys. That was our show with Bill Stone. We really hope you enjoyed that one because Bill and I are massive science nerds 
and would love to get more of that sort of stuff on the show. So if you do it, um, let us know about it. You know, just give it a post on Facebook, share the show. Um, what you can do actually is you can jump onto iTunes and give us a rate and review. Um, a lot of the guys on there tend to tell us the specific shows um, they enjoy and on Instagram as well. So if you like ones like this, we love it as well. Get around us. Bill, who are we sponsored by? We are sponsored by True Pride. Head to www.truepride.com.au forward slash ADVF. Book a call with the guys there and you'll get a $297 joining fee waived if you decide to go ahead. We're also brought to you by Carve, www.carve.ph forward slash ADVF. Get 10 free hours on any project with Carve if you ch- check them out. Definitely do that, guys. And www.adventurefittravel.com. Use the code word radio if you want 10% discount on all of our trips. Don't forget the show notes at www.adventurefittravel.com forward slash podcast. Until next week. And until (laughs) next week. What a rough exit. Yeah, well, that was a very rough exit, wasn't it? See you next week.